Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is dedicated to the memory of Canada's greatest athlete, Iron Mike Sharp. Talks about patriotism and the American flag and everything. He's got a very deep voice. He's very impressive. You know what he looks like to me? What's that? He looks like an overgrown Boy Scout. Well, now, wait a minute. And I'm going to take him down a few notches because I'm the Iron Man. And I'm going to show him what iron is made out of. Iron Mike Sharp, in all due respect, I noticed you're, you're wearing sunglasses. What For what? Well, the light is a little uh, bright here, you know, it bothers me. My pupils, you know, dilates them and whatever. Yes, I know. You're very sensitive. I notice when you come out into arenas, auditoriums, coliseums, whatever, around the World Wrestling Federation and the fans call you wimp, you're really... Now, wait a minute! Oh, oh, wimp! Oh, wimp it there! Wait a minute, hold it! The two-man power trip. That's that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good, how you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man, what's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie, Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Power Trip of Wrestling, brought to you today and powered by Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia, on Saturday, February 6, 2016, live and in living color, come meet former WWE superstar Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Thorne, and an ECW original and ECW heavyweight champion, the franchise, Shane Douglas. Go visit CollectorsWorldVA.com for more information on that fabulous event and a little more about it later on in the show. But with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz and John. Today on the show, we are joined by one of the icons and one of the table setters of the Attitude Era. We are joined by Sean Morley, a.k.a. Val Venus, and of course... How can you not remember, hello, ladies, and Val Venus and the infamous vignettes that brought to life the career of a former adult film star turned professional wrestler. And I know we're going to get into that in just a little bit, but John, when you think about some of the former WWE superstars we've talked to, you know, and everybody's got their interesting little points and the things that they're doing post-wrestling career, especially those who are retired, but Sean Morley specifically, 
What can you say about him and his career? It's taken quite an uh, interesting turn, and he's doing something that's very inspirational to what he's interested in, and he's doing something very, very good for the medical and medicinal marijuana community. But, John, why don't you talk about Sean Morley and what Captain Cannabis is doing post-WWE? Yes, Chatty Boy, back here again at the two-man power trip of wrestling with another fun-filled episode. This time we go all the way back to one of the most legendary eras in the history of the wrestling business, the Attitude Era. And the great thing about our guest today, Val Venus, a.k.a. Sean Morley, a.k.a. Captain Cannabis, is that he was remembered mostly in Attitude Era, of course, as being Val Venus, the porn star, or the quote-unquote ex-porn star, you know, then turned WWE superstar, and, you know, so many wrestlers out there, you kind of remember for one thing, or remembered for another, you know, they did this during their career, they're doing that for his career, but it's interesting with a lot of the guys, what they do post-career for what they get remembered for, you know, outside of wrestling, and with Sean Morley, he kind of falls into that category of really, really, really remembered for the Attitude Era is Val Venus. Then, kind of his post-career, it's kind of like, what has he been up to? What's what's so interesting about this guy? And boom, might have the most interesting post-career of any wrestler. I hope that uh, makes sense to you, Chad. I hope I uh, came off right there, but it's just so interesting to me um, what he's doing post-wrestling career. And obviously, like I said, he's known as Captain Cannabis, so guess what? He's, you know, doing a lot with weed, a.k.a. pot, a.k.a. marijuana, whatever you want to call it, but he's doing a lot with the drug cannabis, and it's not for the reasons you would necessarily think. You know, with a guy like Rob Van Dam or some of his other wrestlers, you're thinking, oh, they're just, you know, Mr. 420, and they just like to smoke and like to get high and all this other stuff, but you really got to listen to the interview, and you delve deeper into what Sean Morley, a.k.a. Val Venus, a.k.a. Captain Cannabis, really really mean by that and we get into the real reasoning behind you know what he's doing now the real reasoning behind his interest in it and we get delve even deeper into some of the friends that he's had over the years that have died from prescription medicine or addictions to painkillers and so so on and so forth and we do get into Andrew Test Martin so it's very interesting stuff from Val and, you know, post-wrestling career, you can't get more interesting than this. I, I pretty much can guarantee that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, I hear you 100%. And, you know, I'll tell you what really caught me about what he's talking about and how passionate he is about cannabis and the strengths and what it really can do for somebody who needs to recover from an injury is the fact that it is linked to so many friends that he's lost. And he, he references Andrew Martin, a.k.a. Test, on a number of occasions. And it's just heartbreaking to know that when you do lose somebody who is that close to you and it is something that could possibly be controllable, uh, albeit given different methods of either prescribing some kind of medication or uh, you know something that could have been somewhat preventative uh, it's kind of tough to hear somebody talk about that and of course just as a fan you know you miss a guy like test who was very entertaining himself and you know you have to think about that attitude error and the fact that it just created so many superstars and so many household names and Val Venus of course being towards the top of that list and you know I guess the next question is pretty simple and that you know what would be Val Venus's role in the attitude era Yes, Chad, like you alluded to, and like I alluded to earlier, 
his role in the Attitude Era. Val Venus, think about it. Even when you have the videos going on in WWE or the DVDs that they put out or the books, you always see that Val is very synonymous with the Attitude Era. I could think back to one of their videos that they made in, right when uh, you know the, the high point sets in and boom, they kick it off and they're focusing on the attitude area. He got Val Venus shaking it, taking the towel off or you know whatever he was doing. But you, you know Val Venus right in the forefront kind of throwing you into the attitude area. And just think of that character. You know, he's an ex-porn star, then turned WWE superstar, and it's so outlandish and it's so over the top, but it fits so perfectly with the Attitude Era, and he was so over, whether he was a face or whether he was a heel. So, I mean, he just fit in perfectly with what they were doing, where they were going, the TV-14, if you will, the very adult, the very, you know, kind of not going for the kids anymore, the anti-PG era, the Attitude Era was just uh, something that will never be duplicated in the wrestling business and Val played such a huge role in that and looking back it's just amazing to see that only a few guys you really think of obviously with the Attitude Era you always think of Stone Cold Steve Austin you always think of guys like The Rock or maybe even DX you throw him in there but Val Venus and The Godfather are guys that you always think of with the Attitude Era because of their gimmicks and because of their storylines. And Val especially, given the fact that you know he would put on great matches as well, you just throw him in there at the top of the heap with the, one of the most remembered wrestlers from possibly the most remembered era of all time. And what is kind of crazy in all that is that his actual in-ring performance and his in-ring skill gets overshadowed by the fact that the vignettes were so creative and the promos were so funny and so comical. And it kind of overshadows the fact that in the ring, bell to bell, he was a great in-ring technician. You know, and one of my questions that I asked him, I said, you know, how was it working in there with The Rock and with McFoley, being that that would have been a great catalyst towards a main event you know, spot for him as we were getting into uh, 1999 into 2000. And, you know, when he kind of said that in ring wise, it was kind of a step back. But, you know, of course, the promos are there and the performance is there. But when you think about Val Venus, I'm not sure if it's the first thing that comes to your mind because of the fact you think of the promos, the vignettes, the videos, the spectacle, you know, the music and all that, uh, that fine glitz and glamour that that's what the WWE is all about. And that's about creating these larger than life personas. But if you think about it and you go and find some footage of what Val did before he was on the WWF main roster, you think about the fact that. He's not necessarily remembered for his in-ring work, but he was one hell of an in-ring technician. You know, the funny thing with Val Venus, the character, is that you don't really think of him being a good wrestler, per se. You know, you got a guy like Chris Benoit or Kurt Angle or Daniel Bryan or something like, man, this guy's a great in-ring technician. This guy's a great wrestler. You think Val Venus, oh, it's a great character, a funny storyline. You know, really funny catchphrases. You know, something along those lines as far as that character, you know, in, in that era. But when you really think about it, and something that was great to hear from him was he took so much pride into his matches and his in-ring. And if you look at it, he was a great hand. He was a great wrestler. He was a great worker. And it's crazy because we even laughed about it afterwards. He's not remembered as being a great worker, but he really was. And it's kind of just goes show you how over that character was that he, you know, the character was so important and the storylines that he was involved in were so important. And it was just kind of, um, 
you know, kind of thrown in there as like, wow, the porn star gimmick is crazy, or, you know, Jenna Jameson on the vignette. So really interesting to really think about it when you really look back and almost, you know, funny in a way that you don't consider him a great wrestler because you, you know, you constantly think of the Val Venus gimmick, but then you go back and you watch his matches. And even when he became chief Morley and then obviously the big Val Polsky and, and so on and so forth, where then he went back to Val Venus. But then you start focusing, wow, this guy's a great wrestler. He's a great hand. And then of course we get into a little bit with the great tryout match that CM Punk had against him. And obviously Punk is a great wrestler as well but it does take two to tango and we talk a little bit about that and how he kind of became the quote-unquote jobber to the stars and he was kind of the enhancement guy but you really think about it is that so much of a bad role perhaps yes maybe maybe money-wise financially maybe in the fans eyes he isn't taking it seriously but company wise he's just such a great wrestler and such a great hand it's almost like oh that he's gonna put the shine on this guy he's gonna make this guy look good He's just going to get this guy over. And I couldn't help but think about this afterwards when uh, Bet, me and Chad were talking. And he was kind of like the Tito Santana of his era. Tito was in the same mold. Yes, you know, they're both former Intercontinental Champions. Yes, they got some big-time matches and they're involved in some main events and stuff. But mostly remember it as a company guy who would put these guys over and put the shine on these guys and make them look really, really good. And I can't help but to think of another guy just exactly like that, you know, our former guest and uh, Tito Santana. So, you know, while it's not really known that he was that great of a worker or not really remember that well, go back, watch his matches, and you will be enthralled with, with him and his in-ring action because he was a hell of a worker and a hell of a wrestler and, dare I say, very, very underrated. Definitely, it is never a bad thing to be compared to our one-year anniversary guest, the legendary Tito Santana. And we thank Val Venus, Sean Morley, Captain Cannabis so much for coming on. And please listen to his plugs and check him out on his Captain Cannabis YouTube show. He's such an interesting guy, and he's so damn passionate about his feelings on the, the usage of cannabis and how it is a positive thing for that recovery and the injuries. And it's really, it's very good. So listen to that part of the show and really go check out Sean Morley's uh, doings as Captain Cannabis because it's quite interesting. But speaking of other interesting things, today's episode is brought to you by Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. And you can go visit collectorsworldva.com for all the information about the big event on Saturday, February 6, 2016, as former WWE superstar and True to Manpower Trip of Wrestling guy Kevin Thorne joins ECW original and former ECW heavyweight champion, the franchise Shane Douglas, for an awesome meet and greet, picture taking, handshaking, the whole nine yards. A great day filled with a lot of fun. And you can come on over to Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. And again, visit collectorsworldva.com for more information about that awesome event. And while you're there, why don't you come over and say hello to the two-man power trip of wrestling. And we'll chat about things like our Best of series, which is airing on the TopRowPress.com radio network. Check out the awesome Best of series that we have going on there. And at the end of the month, there's going to be debuting a special brand new compilation episode that's going to settle on one 
friggin' hilarious topic. And if you've listened to our shows, this is going to be one for the ages as we bring together a couple takes on one specific story, but more about that as it comes about. Now, John, I'm going to stop right there and I'm going to send it over to you and hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and send them on over to Val Venus. And now on to some TMPT business. Chad, as you previously mentioned, we are now part of the Top Rope Press family. That's right, Top Rope, excuse me, TopRopePress.com and the Top Rope Press Radio Network. We're a part of them and we're giving exclusive best ofs every week on there. So please check us out there and please check out TopRopePress.com for all your wrestling needs because they're the best in the business today. Also, some more TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while you're on iTunes, check out the feed for past great episodes with the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Harley Race, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, Sergeant Slaughter, Tully Blanchard, Stan the Larry Hansen, The Blueprint, Matt Morgan. Scotty Riggs, Jerry Lynn, and so, so, so many more. So please check us out on iTunes. Don't forget about the website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And speaking of another great sports network that we're associated with, check us out every week on the I-95 Sports Network. Google it up and check it out. That is the I-95 Sports Network. We're bringing best ofs and exclusives to them as well. So please check us out on there. Always some good stuff. Now... If you're interested in booking Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Fertig, please email bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. Just remember one thing, he's back out of exile, and if you can, check out the pictures of his transformation because he is looking huge. He's back, and he's in great shape, and he wants to bring the bike club to a town near you. So email us. For all that booking information on the big man and while you're at it, go check out the Kevin Thorne page on Pro Wrestling Tees. They're making the greatest t-shirts in the history of the wrestling business. So please go to ProWrestlingTees.com for all your Kevin Thorne t-shirts. And you too can be a member of the Bike Club. And now, without any further ado, the former CMLL World Heavyweight Champion, the former WWF European Champion, the former WWF Tag Team Champion, the former two-time WWF Intercontinental Champion, you may know him as Sean Morley, or Captain Cannabis, or the big Val Bolsky, but we know him as Val Venus. Please enjoy. Hello, ladies. One of the pioneering forces behind the iconic WWE Attitude Era. He's a two-time Intercontinental Champion, a former European Champion, a former Tag Champion, and how could you forget his reign as a CMLL World Heavyweight Champion? He is the man himself. You know him as Val Venus, Sean Morley. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thanks for having me on, man. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's our pleasure. I mean, you're, uh, there's so much that we want to talk to you about, but let's, uh, 
Let's start right off the top, and that is you're also the host of the Captain Cannabis Show. Please tell us a little bit about that and what you've been up to uh, since, I guess, I mean, I don't want to say retired because you're never really retired, but what have you been up to since you kind of stepped away from the business? Well, I've, uh, you know, I still do a couple of shots here and there once in a while when I get the itch, but uh, really after, uh, you know, departing WWE back in 2008, uh, you know, I had a new goal, a new focus, and that was to get into the cannabis industry and start really building a business from the cannabis industry. And so, you know, I spent quite a while trying to get into dispensaries. I opened up a vapor lounge, um, and I've just recently in the last year started my Captain Cannabis show on YouTube. Uh, that I'm still working on trying to develop a proper format that I really would like to continue on with. Uh, so right now I'm in the midst of every time I do a recording, uh, I'm just trying a different format and see really what I like to do best going forward. Um, but the cannabis industry to me is uh, it's a diamond in the rough and it's getting smoothed out every day. The, the cannabis industry is exploding. I mean, the global economy right now is completely shattered and it's getting ready to just completely self-destruct, especially with this derivatives bubble. And the one shining light that will really, uh, really kind of shine a light on the rest of the economy is the cannabis industry. Um, it's still in its, uh, is still, uh, you know, in its, in its younger years right now, but it's, it's growing at an incredibly fast pace. More and more information is getting out there about cannabis. People are really learning the truth of what cannabis can do for them going forward in the, into the future. And uh, I just see nothing but good things for the cannabis industry going forward. No, it's great to hear, you know, especially from a social perspective, you know, for people who might be ill-informed or people who might not have the right information or maybe even the right kind of perception of what the cannabis industry can be somebody like you who does believe in it so strongly and can have different outlets, you know, to get your point out there, whether it is as a part of a, of a show or having these dispensaries as you talk about or your vapor lounge. Uh, what was really the final straw to really get you involved? Because obviously it's got to be something that you have a passion for. So what was really the final, uh, you know, push to make this movement come to life? Well, you know, I, up until I was about 27, 28 years old, I was very much anti-marijuana. I was anti-drugs, period, at the time. And, uh, you know, at the time I started noticing that, you know, there was a lot of guys that uh, I had wrestled with or that I had shared a locker room with at one point in time or that I became really good friends with that have ended up with their feet in the grave and eventually uh, six feet under. And it seemed to happen uh, over and over and over and over again. And one thing I noticed was the fact that none of my friends and none of my colleagues that were using marijuana instead of big pharmaceutical pills uh, None of them were having any issues whatsoever. Uh, they were still in the gym training. They weren't waking up hungover. They weren't dying at, at an accelerated rate by any stretch of the means. Nobody died from marijuana. Um, and in contrast, anybody that uh, was utilizing pharmaceutical pain medications, anti-inflammatories, um, anti-anxiety medications, sleeping medications, uh, all the big pharmaceutical uh, drugs that were pushed down, uh, I think all athletes' throats, not just in WWE, but in all athletes' throats. Uh, I, I started, like, you just recognize it looks like it's common sense. 
these people were falling off like like flies uh, being fumigated from a home. It's it's insane. It was one person after another. So when I started recognizing these uh, these instances to be facts, uh, people using marijuana were staying alive, and not only alive, but were staying healthy. And people using big pharmaceutical medications were dying at an accelerated rate, one after another after another. Um, so it was about when I was 28 years old when I started to say, well, maybe cannabis ain't so bad. Let me find out what's really behind uh, the um, attraction to cannabis. And so I tried smoking it for the very first time, and I didn't really get anything other than just a very relaxed feeling from it. And I was kind of taken back because I've been indoctrinated with the belief that cannabis was a horribly dangerous drug. And there I am after a few puffs of marijuana, and I'm just relaxed, and I'm still focused. Um, I'm still in my right state of mind. My inhibitions were still intact. And, you know, I woke up in the morning having the best night of sleep I think I've ever had at that point. And so that's when I started to go, wait a minute, I've been lied to my whole life. And I started doing research on it. And, of course, at the time, I still wasn't convinced that uh, it was – the best substitute for uh, big pharmaceutical drugs. Um, I was still taking pharmaceutical drugs. I was uh, always on pain pills. Every time I got injured, whether it was my elbows, my neck, my shoulder, uh, I'd always go back to what the doctor would prescribe me, and that was anti-inflammatories. And and uh, and still, my friends were dying from it. And but as time went on, I started to notice that you know, hey, we have been lied to about this plant. My friends are dying left, right, and center from big pharmaceutical pills. And I think the camel or the straw that broke the camel's back was when my one of my best friends, Andrew Tess Martin, passed away from pharmaceutical pain meds. That's when I said, okay, enough's enough. And that's when I really took a stand. I came off the pills. Um, I didn't have to go to rehab. Uh, my body was addicted to the pills. Uh, I went through two weeks of horrible withdrawals uh, but the second week of those withdrawals, I started utilizing marijuana on the advice of a friend uh, to try and, you know, kind of get rid of the sickness. Well, it didn't get rid of the sickness at all from, you know, going through the withdrawals of, of the pills. But what it did do was it made the withdrawals bearable. It made it so I didn't have the cravings to go and get another pill so I didn't feel sick anymore. And it made it easy to just wait out the withdrawals. And when I came out the other end of those withdrawals two weeks after I stopped taking the pills, I never looked back. And that was in 2008. So cannabis was actually my uh, my rehab. It really was. It's what got me off the pills. And uh, I've never looked back, and I'll never take another pharmaceutical drug like that again. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. I mean, and it was obviously a huge epidemic that, you know, it's still a worldwide epidemic, but specifically speaking to pro wrestling, I mean, you know, you say your friends, we say the people that we idolized and watched on television, it was almost like I said, you're a pioneer of the Attitude Era, but it was almost like watching guys from that era just kind of, you know, they just, they faded away and it, something would happen, and it's unfortunately that it did, it seems like it's kind of, you know, slowed, maybe subsided somewhat, but now WWE has a very strict uh, wellness policy where they test for multiple kinds of performance-enhancing drugs as well as pharmaceutical drugs, but also for marijuana. And as a superstar, you can now get popped for usage of marijuana, 
What do you think about something like that being in there? Because, guys, maybe not, uh, you know, using it for just a recre- you know, recreational purpose, but actually maybe for what you're saying, if you could amend that, what would you tell WWE about that part of the wellness policy? Well, it, to me, it's not a stringent wellness policy at all. I, mean, I could drive a Mack truck through their wellness policy. Um, the reality of the situation is, uh, you know, I was on those pills. I was testing positive for those pills, yet I passed my drug test every single time. And the reason I passed my drug test every single time was because as soon as I test positive for hydrocodone, Dr. Black from Agus Sciences, who's the lab and who's the main doctor at the uh, testing facility, would call me up and he'd ask for a valid prescription for hydrocodone pills. I would send him a valid prescription, and the two weeks later or a week later, I would get a letter in the mail saying, congratulations, you passed your wellness exam. Uh, and so the fact that you have uh, a, a valid prescription for these pills doesn't change the fact that people get addicted to them and die. I mean, test, Andrew Test Martin had a prescription for them. Almost every wrestler has had a prescription for them. Uh, so, I mean, you literally, I mean, they don't test for it. They say they test for um, the quantity of hydrocodone in your system. That's bullshit. They don't test for the quantity of hydrocodone in your system. They test for presence. So you could get a prescription for, say, 90 pills of hydrocodones, and then you could turn around and, and get a several more prescriptions or even buy them from the black market if you know somebody in the black market. And so even though you have a prescription for 90, you could have a 1,000 of them sitting in your house right now. And so it, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, it, the testing policy, it, although it's a step in the right direction, it's still, I mean, we're allowing WWE talent to utilize heroin in a pill yet we'll fine them $2,500 every time they test positive for THC. Now, what WWE basically says to me with their actions, because what they tell me is that they have to fine guys for pot because they're a corporation and they have to follow federal law. Well, what their actions are telling me is that WWE thinks it's more important to follow federal law than it is the health and well-being of their own talent. And that's a sad situation. Is it WWE's fault? Probably not. I think the federal government has a huge hand in this. Hey, federal government has to take a step forward and change the policy uh, in regards to cannabis prohibition. However, that said, WWE, Dan, like NFL, is starting to explore marijuana use as medicine now uh, for NFL players. I was really hoping that WWE would stand up and take the lead on that. It's WWE that's lost more talent than the NFL has uh, with these pills. And, and it's one of those things where WWE could easily stand up and say, listen, we understand that cannabis is uh, against federal law. However, um, you know, we've lost a lot of athletes to these big pharmaceutical drugs. And we would, you know, if athletes choose to use cannabis, we're not going to punish them for it. And that would really be a moral and ethical stance to take. The fact that WWE is avoiding even talking about taking a stance like that is sad to me. To watch NFL taking uh, taking the lead on that is uh, is something. I mean, I guess I'm kind of biased as you know. I prefer it to be WWE. It's a good thing NFL is taking that stance, but definitely uh, I would love to see the WWE step up to the plate 
and really start to make a movement for change when it comes to athletes' real medicine. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that's very well said. And I'll tell you, you know, it's funny you say about the federal regulations. If the federal regulations wanted to step in, there would be a whole war between what is and what is not an independent contractor and obviously the benefits that an independent contractor doesn't get that WWE might offer to a full-time office employee. But with that being said, you know, with the NFL and their policies, and then WWE also has policies as it relates to concussions, which is a big-time NFL hot-button topic. Obviously, there's a movie out <laughs> that's really documenting that. But do you feel that, you know, the, the linkage between, you know, these concussion problems and, you know, the addiction to the pills, that in wrestling or in sports entertainment or in WWE, do you feel there's been a movement to kind of change that culture that we're going to try to do things a little safer to not have guys maybe get as injured but, you know, not having to rely on pills when, at this point, their roster is almost depleted because everybody's injured. Yeah, you know, I, I really, to me, it's uh, cannabis is, to me, the original medicine. It's not the alternative medicine. It is the real medicine. And so I, I think WWE taking steps in the right direction in terms of concussions when it comes to um, eliminating chair shots to the head um, and, and doing simple things like that, I think, can definitely make it safer. And WWE has done a great job at doing so. Uh, but when it comes to medicine, WWE has dropped the ball. It is something that, uh, that I'm not going to let up on. Um, I, it's not just WWE. A lot of other, uh, you know, the Olympics, for example, uh, has dropped the ball on this. Um, you know, and, and I mean, we can, we can say federal government's dropped the ball on it, but can you expect anything more from federal government? Absolutely not. I think the federal government drops the ball on every damn thing they do. So I don't expect any, anything more from them. But what I do expect and what I would love to see is private companies, or if you want to call them public, but, you know, basic private companies like the WWE or the NFL or the NHL or the NBA, I'd love to see these corporations stand up and say, you know what, enough is enough. Cannabis is a safe medication, and it's the safest medication on the face of God's green earth. There's no question about that. That's not up for debate. Uh, you know, I would love for these corporations to stand up and say this is the safest medicine in the world, and regardless of what the federal government um, has written down on a piece of paper prohibiting this substance, uh, we're going to allow our, our athletes to utilize this as medicine or as a substitute for alcohol, because cannabis is also far safer than alcohol as well. And I, I think it extends further than just sports and entertainment. I think it extends into uh, just general society. I mean, how much productivity could be increased if only 10% of the people that utilize alcohol right now on the weekends instead chose cannabis? They'd be going to work every Monday morning completely hangover free. And so you wouldn't have employees calling into the to the job site on Monday morning saying, oh, I can't come in today, I'm sick, I'm hungover. You know, you wouldn't have that. Uh, so you'd be have a lot less of that. And so to me, the, the entire movement for the legalization of cannabis and removing all the rules and regulations in regards to possessing or growing the plant uh, is something that's, uh, that I hold dear, you know, near and dear to my heart and it's something I'm not going to stop campaigning for. Absolutely, and you know you make some great points there. But if I could lighten the mood just a little bit, and kind of you know we're talking about WWE or WWF, and I kind of want to get into that era because, like Chad mentioned earlier, you're definitely a pioneer. And when people say attitude era, it's funny. 
either your face pops up or a video of you pops up or something pops up in a book, you know, pertaining to the attitude era, and you, you were a huge part of that. But if I could, how did they actually get you into the WWF? Like, who scouted you? Who got you? I mean, obviously, you were big in uh, Mexico and in Japan and in Canada and stuff, but who scouted you into the WWF to bring you in as Valvinus? I think it was a combination between uh, it was it was a three way combination pretty much um, Gorilla Monsoon, um, Bruce Pritchard, and Victor Quinones uh, were the three. I think Victor Quinones was the one that uh, um, basically had uh, Gorilla Monsoon and uh, and Bruce Pritchard uh, take a look at me down in Mexico, and uh, you know they, they came at me with uh, with an offer. I went up to Des Moines, Iowa uh, after you know a few different discussions with WWE um, and I did a match for them up there and then I flew back to Mexico and I was still, uh, you know, I still had quite a while to go in Mexico regardless of what happened with WWE. Uh, but eventually they, they asked me after that first match that I did for them in Des Moines, Iowa, they asked me if I could take, you know, a little bit of time off of Mexico and come up to Stanford and, uh, and do their very first camp at the time. And so I went up to Stanford and, uh, and did the very first camp and, uh, signed my contract right after that. Uh, it was uh, Edge and I and, uh, and a couple of other guys were uh, the guys that they brought into that very first camp. And uh, so we all got signed uh, after that first camp. And my deal was I still had about six months left in Mexico. So I signed my contract with WWE, but went back to Mexico to finish up down there. And so, uh, yeah, that's how that came about. It was just a combination of Victor Quinones, um, you know, kind of putting me over to uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Bruce Pritchard, and from that point on, it just uh, kind of blew up from there. And it was great, too, because, you know, before you debuted, you know, it's kind of the old school thing, what they don't do much of anymore is you have these cool vignettes, and before, you know, you kind of debut, you get a kind of a sense of who this character is, and you kind of, you know, you get in delved and, and, you know, you really get a piece of, of the character actually before, you know, fully see them debuting and wrestling on TV. What was it like filming right. those vignettes? Because there was a lot of fun. I mean, the Janet Jameson one and, and a couple other ones. How, how much fun were those vignettes? Oh, those are a lot of fun. Yeah, those are a lot of fun, especially, uh, you know, we had Jenna Jameson over at Bruce Pritchard's house and we're filming in the tub, we're filming in the backyard. You know, we were filming everywhere over there and uh, it was a lot of fun, man. Um, it was one of the things where, you know, I found it very, very entertaining. They didn't have to twist my arm to play a former porn star turned pro wrestler. I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> Who approached you with, you know, that gimmick and saying, hey, like, was it a Vince Van or was it a Russo? Or who, you know, kind of pitched that idea to you? So uh, when I went back down to Mexico, it was probably about 7 in the morning, and I was just getting ready to wake up and go to the gym, and uh, the phone rang. And I picked up the phone, and it was and it was Vince McMahon, and he was on speakerphone with Vince Russo, and he basically said, uh, "Hey, so we got this character that we would uh, like to throw by you and see if you feel comfortable playing this character. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable playing this character, let us know, and uh, we'll find something that you will feel comfortable playing. Because the bottom line is, if you don't feel comfortable playing a certain character, there's no way it's going to get over. You have to present it with." And so, you know, when uh, Vince told me Val Venus was a former film star turned pro wrestler, the first thing that popped into my head was, 
ah, Jesse Ventura, the whole Hollywood thing. It's already been done. But then he said, actually, Val Venus was a former porn star turned pro wrestler. That's when I said, okay, I'm in. <laughs> I didn't even hesitate. And then I remember Vince uh, telling me, hey, well, you know, maybe you want to think about it for 24 hours. And I go, no, I don't need to think about that. Former porn star pro turned pro wrestler, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and who came up with, like, obviously, you know, your voice is so synonymous with character, but, you know, you're almost deeper and doing the hello, lady, and the towel and everything else. Is that kind of you and Russo coming up with it, or that's basically your idea for the character? Uh, no, you know, Vince kind of drew out the original outline of the of the character. Um, the towel came into play when the very first vignette I did, when I walked out of the shower and I put the towel around my waist, I said to myself, heck, nobody ever walks down to the ring with a towel around their waist. That's perfect for me. So it was the very first vignette when uh, we were just doing a towel scene, and it just popped into my head, hey, I should really wear this down to the ring. And then in the, I believe it was either the second or the third vignette, I can't recall, uh, we started the vignette out with, hello, ladies. And it popped into my head. I should say that every single time. So as we were doing the vignettes, we were already developing more into the character as we moved forward. And so, uh, yeah, it was just... Uh, Basically, Vince had a basic outline of what he felt the character should be, and then we just built off of that initial outline of the original character. So funny that that character goes in perfectly with the attitude ever, and it's you know it's just like uh, oil and vinegar almost. You know, it just goes together so perfectly, peanut butter and jelly, and it just kind of just fit with where you know Vince was going and went perfectly. And your first feud, so to speak, is with Kai and Tai, and then you get the infamous choppy choppy your pee-pee with Yamaguchi-san, and so on. What was it like, you know, with that whole angle, when that was proposed to you, like, were you like, this is going to be a lot of fun, or like, this is kind of getting a little crazy now? Uh, no, I thought it was going to be a lot of fun, and it really was. Um, you know, it was, it was one of the things where up until I got into the WWE, I was basically just a hard-nosed wrestler, old so old school style hard-nosed wrestler, um, you know. And, and you know, that's the characters that I played in in Puerto Rico, in Europe, in, in Mexico, um, in, in Japan, uh, you know. And so when I came to WWE and they put that character on me, um, it wasn't. They did. WWE didn't come out and say, "Hey, don't really wrestle too much. Just focus on your character." They gave me the character and basically allowed me to wrestle when the bell rang. And uh, it, to me, that was a perfect combination. I can come down there and, and do the things that were entertaining and were fun. And then, uh, and then once that bell rang, you know, it, it was back to old school style, hard nosed wrestling. And so, you know, that's to me, it was a perfect combination, especially for the Attitude Era. And it was so cool because of the cliffhanger at the end of Raw was the whole choppy chop your pee thing. It's almost like you got to tune in next week to find out what happened to this guy. You know, do you remember thinking to yourself, like, wow, this is uh, not only, you know, a very fun angle to do, but it's getting over big, and I got a huge part on the biggest, you know, the biggest part of the biggest show, basically. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, you, you know, it really to get on the uh, the very end of Raw at that point in time was something that kind of took me back. I was like, okay, 
I'm there. Do you know what I mean? It was just one of those things mm-hmm. where I had to really sit back and just take account of everything that I've been through to get there and uh, just really enjoy the moment. And that's exactly what I did. Absolutely great. And then the next week, obviously, you find out of the shrinkage, so to speak, and you learn from John Wayne Bobbitt. Did you have a lot of fun with that, too? Or, or did you think at that point, like, okay, this is getting, uh, you know, a little over the top? Well, you, the the idea was that John Wayne, as soon as that sword was raised up into the air, John Wayne Bobbitt flipped the lights out and Kai and Ty missed. And so uh, that's kind of how that ended. You know, you, to me, it was a fun angle. It was uh, it was entertaining. But I got to tell you, man, John Wayne Bobbitt's one of the dumbest people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> And that, that's a shoot right there. He is legitimately one of the dumbest people I've ever met in my life. Uh, sad, sad uh, story with him, and you know, different story for a different day. But yeah, he's he's a character to himself, and you know, he's just out there. But you know, as far as the WWS and you know, you doing fun angles and fun stuff, you also got to wrestle some great workers. And I believe it was your first pay per view match. You got in there with uh, Jeff Jarrett. Uh, let's see. I know I got another ring a few times with Jeff Jarrett. Um, I'm trying to recall. It was, uh, I think the very first SummerSlam 98 that I did was with, uh, D'Lo Brown. Yes. Yeah. Now I can't remember whether I did a pay-per-view before that or not. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't think I did. I think Jeff, I think he, I think D'Lo Brown was the very first one that, uh, I had a big, uh, pay-per-view match with. Now, what are your thoughts of D'Lo? Because that was kind of, a, you know, a high point in that pay-per-view as well. Yeah, I think we had a phenomenal match, man. It was, uh, it, it was. I mean, we were going eye-to-eye and toe-to-toe. We really knocked the ball out of the park with that one. Um, one thing that really sticks out in my mind was when I came backstage, both of us literally collapsed behind the curtain and we were just sucking wind like there was no tomorrow. Uh, it was uh, it, it was uh, a test of a test to my cardio uh, ability at that point in time. And man, did I ever push my cardio to to a brand new level at that on that match there? That was great because that was kind of like a coming out party, so to speak. With like, wow, this guy's not only a, a good character. He's also the hell of a wrestler, and he gets to show both sides. As, you know, he can be entertaining, but then as soon as the bell rings, he's a great wrestler. And then obviously, you get in there with a guy like Hilo, and you guys are you know almost able to basically steal the show. Yeah, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with Hilo uh, in Puerto Rico before either of us were in uh, WWE, but we never wrestled each other in Puerto Rico because we were both heels down there. And uh, but yeah, I mean we lived together down there, so I got to see how he wrestled, uh, the kind of stuff that he did, um, and of course uh, he got to see how I wrestled as well. And uh, to actually both of, have both of us get into the WWE and then compete against each other was uh, it, it was it was a tremendous moment for me, and I'm sure it was a tremendous moment for Dilo as well. It was basically us two solidifying our abilities in the wrestling industry that night. Absolutely. And then you would move on you know, a little bit down the road, but Dustin Runnels, a.k.a. Dustin Rhodes, and then kind of doing the, the religious thing and kind of feuding with you there, and then eventually you, you would feud with him as Goldust. 
And there's a lot of stories about him being a you know, character backstage and you know, a very good guy, but he was also a great hand and a great wrestler. Do you have fond memories of working with good old Dustin Rhodes? Absolutely. One of the funniest guys in the locker room. <laughs> He's, uh, yeah, Dustin's a good dude, man. He's a really, really good dude. He's easy to work with. Um, he's got a really good mind for the business. Uh, you know, he's one of those guys that I, I believe can help the young guys really develop and become uh, become the very best entertainers they can be. I think that's – Dustin Reynolds is definitely one guy that I think people should pay attention to when it comes to, uh, you know, really becoming a character in the industry. Absolutely, and it's crazy to look at him now. And I guess, you know, he did a lot of DDP yoga, but he almost looks in better shape now than he did then. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, he was one of those guys that, uh, you know, he was in the pills too at one point in time. Uh, he was into the alcohol, and so, you know, he got himself all cleaned up, thank God for that. And, uh, you know, he started really focusing on, on, on health. And so, uh, you know, it, it was tremendous to see the transformation that he went through. And, yeah, he's right now in the best shape I've ever seen him. Crazy. And, I, you know, you want to see him get out there more and uh, maybe a little feud with Stardust or something, but you definitely want to see him on TV more because uh, you can't pass up how great he looks. You know, obviously he's getting a little bit older and older, but he looks in great physical shape. But speaking about someone who still looks in great shape and is actually still fighting, that you had a bit of a feud with, and that's Ken Shamrock. What are your memories of working with uh, Crazy Man Ken? Oh, Ken's intense. No question about that. Uh, you know, Kenny and I had a really good storyline there going for a little while. Uh, you know, we had some really good matches. Um, I'm not going to say Ken's the best wrestler in the world, but he's pretty damn good. And when it comes to uh, intensity, I think it's unmatched. He's got just incredible intensity. Um, you know, he, he's believable. He's, uh, he's, he's got a decent mind for the business as well. Um, you know, and, and it was fun working with him. It was, it was a lot of fun working with the guy. He's a, he's a really good dude. He's, uh, you know, he's one of those guys that I think when it comes to intensity, I learned a lot from him. I always considered my myself to be fairly intense when I'm actually performing in the ring. Uh, but when I got in there with Ken, I think I realized over a period of time that, heck, he, he, he's showing me that I can actually increase my intensity level in every single match that I do going forward. And so I, I credit uh, working with Ken Shamrock for elevating the intensity level that I already had. Absolutely. And then in with that, which is a great feud, they kind of spiced it up and add a little bit of uh, entertainment with uh, his kayfabe, you know, sister, if you will, Ryan Shamrock. And, you know, you guys yes. did those funny, like, mock movies, uh, shaving uh, Ryan's privates and stuff like that. Did you enjoy doing, like, those, uh, you know, mock almost uh, porn movies? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they were a lot of fun to do. Um, you know, um, Alicia, who was the one that was playing Ken Shamrock's sister, um, you know, she was a lot of fun to work with. Uh, she had a good head on her shoulders. And, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was it was a great time all around for sure. Very funny stuff. And, obviously, you know, you go on and they give you the Intercontinental title, which, you know, is the second highest title in the company. And that just shows how much you know, respect they have for you and they, they like where your character is. What did, you know, what was your feeling of winning an Intercontinental Championship? Because some guys just 
see it as a title. Other guys see it as an important, you know, placeholder within the company. I always thought the Intercontinental title really was given to the best technical wrestlers in the in the company at the time. Um, you know, you you had guys like uh, the uh, Macho Man, um, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat. You, I mean, I, I could go on and on and on about. Uh, you know, all the Intercontinental title holders over time and guys that uh, competed for the Intercontinental title, they always seem to be the best technical wrestlers uh, in the in WWE. Um, and so to win that title, especially the first time, was like, yeah, I'm there. And so to me, the Intercontinental title was even more important at that point in time to win than the, uh, than the world title. And so uh, it was a huge uh, accomplishment in my mind uh, to to win that IC title for sure. I mean, I, that's a title that I always, I whenever when I was a kid, I always wanted to watch. I mean, I wanted to see all the matches, but I was more interested in seeing the Intercontinental title uh, match than I was the World title match. And so, uh, and I think that just relates back to the real hardcore technical wrestlers were the ones that, uh, you know, would, would acquire the IC title. Absolutely. And we literally could go on, you know, for days, all those, you know, Bret Hart and so on and so forth. Like all the awesome guys that hold the IC title that you just look at as great workers. But did you feel like your IC title run was cut a little bit short? Cause it seemed like it wasn't, you know, I think it was a month or a month and a half or whatever. It really wasn't as long as it possibly should have been. Yeah, you know, I would have liked to have really held that title a lot longer. They gave it to me a second time as well. Um, but I think at that point in time, they were uh, getting an inkling that maybe the company should change direction. And uh, I think at that point in time, they were really starting to uh, at least discuss a change in direction for WWE. Uh, it didn't happen until a few, few years later. But I think at that point in time, it was really starting to be discussed uh, in the office. And so it was one of those things where, you know, it, it was what it was. And, you know, I was glad to hold it. I wish I could have held it longer and done more with it. But I mean, you know, Hey, it's Vince's company. He can do what he wants with it. Now, how about the longevity that you managed to have? Because, you know, the character did evolve quite a number of times with the, you know, name change and then you actually being Sean Morley and then coming back to being Val. But how about your longevity? Did it really, uh, did you kind of find a way to uh, hang around there? Like, did you know how to play, you know, the political game or was it just something that you were a great hand and they just wanted to keep you around because you had a great run if you, uh, you know, look at from 98 through about 2008 before you left? Yeah, you know, it was one of those things where, I kind of became, I kind of got put into the position of being the gatekeeper. So new guys coming up from OVW or from Cincinnati at the time, uh, you know, I'm the one that would get in the ring with them. I'm the one that would do the dark match with them. Uh, I'm the one that would be questioned afterwards about, hey, so what did you think about working with this guy? And uh, do you think he's, uh, you know, got some abilities, blah, blah, blah. And so I was basically put into a position of gatekeeper at the time. Um, and I remember Hunter specifically stating uh, to one of the, the new guys coming up, he goes, yeah, we're going to put you in the ring with Val tonight and we'll see how you work. I mean, if you can't have a good match with Val, you can't have a good match with anyone. I remember Hunter specifically saying that to the new guy that was just coming in for a tryout. And in some ways that kind of irked me. 
And in other ways, I was kind of like, well, that's kind of respectful, too. Um, I didn't really know how to take it because, I mean, let's face it, at the time I really wanted to be, uh, you know, the, the, the best in the industry. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to have the stage and, and be able to perform at the highest level every night. And I was kind of being pushed into, hey, wrestle this guy and uh, let us know what you think. And I just kind of fell into that groove and I didn't mind wrestling, you know, any of the, uh, the, you know, prospects or, uh, you know, and, you know, the, I mean, CM Punk was a prospect and I had to wrestle him his very first night. It was a dark match and that was the match that got him signed. And so, uh, you know, I kind of got put into that position. I didn't mind it at all, especially working with guys like CM Punk or, um, you know, uh, Chris Masters, um, there was, um, you know, there was several different guys that I was, uh, you know, put in a position to, I guess, basically explore their abilities and see we can, what we can come up with for them. And so, uh, you know, it was like a double-edged sword for me almost. One side, one side of the fact factor is I didn't really appreciate being stuck in that position. And at the same time, I realized I was in that position because they respected my ability in the ring. But it's not really what I wanted to do. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, I don't even know really what to say about it. It was one of those things that I guess kind of left a, a black mark on my career in some ways. And in other ways, it just kind of, it kept me working. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great way to put it with the fact you were the gatekeeper. Because, you know, you look at the young guys that you worked with, you know, towards the latter end of your time there. But then you look at the beef and you look at the middle of when you were there, and even as the you know the Val Venus character really evolved, I mean it's main eventer after main eventer, it's Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer, I mean and to really single out, you know there was a time where they kind of they kind of give you like an abrupt heel turn and then boom you're feuding with Mick Foley and The Rock and you're getting you know main events on SmackDown, main segments on Raw. Talk about working with The Rock and Mick Foley at that time, and you really couldn't have gotten two hotter acts. Uh, then the two of them put together, and we all know what happened to uh, Mr. Rocco uh, and where he ended up. But talk about working with those guys <laughs> at that point, and uh, did that kind of elevate your game at working in such a high spot after uh, you know only about a year and a half as uh, Val Venus? Um, not really. I, I don't think it did. I, I, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, you know, to me, it was, uh, it was entertaining and I, I, you know, I wouldn't have changed it for anything, but as far as elevating my abilities inside the ring or the, the light of my abilities, uh, I think it was detrimental to it in some way. Um, you know, I, I would have much preferred to have worked with people like, uh, uh, Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero, which I did wrestle them on many occasions, but I was never into a storyline with them. Uh, right. and so you know, it's one of those things where, and nothing against Mankind's wrestling ability. I mean, uh, you know, Mankind is one of the most entertaining guys of the Attitude Era. Of course, Rock, hands down, the very most entertaining guy in the in the Attitude Era and still continues that today. Um, but as far as wrestling ability, like I said earlier in the interview, you know, I, I came from that old-school, hard-nosed uh, wrestler-type um you know, athlete that entered the WWE. And I found that when I got in there with Mick Foley and, and with The Rock to doing very basic things, I couldn't really, um, I mean, just technically, I think as a character, I was able to shine even more. But as a wrestler, I think I had to take it down a couple notches in order to compete against them. Um, 
you know, I remember specifically one time uh, we were in a house show and I was working rock and uh, he goes, put me in a hold. So I put him in a hold that, you know, I had learned and utilized in Mexico and several times in WWE as well. Uh, and so I put him in a hold and the only thing I could hear is, <laughs> how the fuck do I get out of this? <laughs> and so... You know what I mean? I, I had to almost almost dumb down my wrestling ability a little bit, which that's really what I wanted to do. I love all the entertainment. That was a lot of fun. I wouldn't change it for anything. But, yeah, I don't think uh, getting in there with Rock or Mankind, uh, you know, increased my wrestling ability in any way, shape, or form. Uh, that's, uh, it may have made me a better I, – I think, I think it made me a better entertainer, but it certainly didn't make me a better wrestler. Now that's so. That's really that's awesome to hear because of the fact that you know when you say the the word main eventer, a lot of times people you know maybe if they're not as educated towards things going on, they might say, oh well, the main eventer is the best wrestler. Well, obviously that's not the case. In a lot of you know cases, when you look at guys who were main eventing at different times, obviously McFoley is a great entertainer, but not really known for his uh, in ring ability. But a guy who is known for both being entertaining and in-ring was Stone Cold Steve Austin, who, uh, you know, how can we leave him out when we talk about main eventers? How about working Austin at that point, you know, the biggest star in the business uh, in 98, 99, into 2000, right around the time he got hurt. Uh, but, you know, again, huge draw, great entertainment value, but could still, you know, he could get in there and bust it up with the best of them. Absolutely. I mean, I got in there with Austin one night, and I just remember the very first time I got in the ring with him, one on one, and it was. Uh, I I came backstage, and the first thing I said, and I thought I had good cardio. I got backstage, and I was I was shaking my head, going, "Man, I got to really increase my cardio to keep up with that son of a bitch," because I don't understand. Uh, I don't understand how much cardio he did, or or what he. But he that guy's a cardio machine. Um, he can just go and go and go and go. And, I mean, I thought I had good cardio until I got in there with him. So to get in there with him, it was it refocused me, I think. Um, it was something where, okay, he's he's got the wrestling ability. Um, technically, I don't think he, was, uh, he, he could match me technically. Um, but as far as his intensity and as far as him just going balls to the wall, absolutely. I think he increased my wrestling ability uh, tenfold getting in the ring with him. I did notice that at that moment I doubled up on my cardio. Um, and so for the next several months I noticed that my, my cardio went through the roof and my matches were even getting better. And I, I strictly credit uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin for that. That was the first time, I think, in my life uh, that I had gotten out of the ring, gone backstage, and going, damn, my cardio is nowhere near where it needs to be. And so uh, the, it, Stone Cold Steve Austin is the only one that uh, I've ever said that. He, even that match with D'Lo Brown, uh, 98 SummerSlam, uh, in Madison Square Gardens, I was blown sky high at that point. But it was to be expected with what we did inside that ring. When I got in there with Austin, I did not. Ex I expected myself to be completely okay cardio-wise, and I was going to blow Stone Cold Steve Austin up. And uh-uh, that ain't what happened. <laughs> and so Stone Cold, I think, really took my cardio game to a new level, which overall increased my, my wrestling ability inside the ring. Yeah, without a doubt. And then you go, you want to talk about a wrestler – 
how about the only Olympic gold uh, medalist in WWE history, and that's Kurt Angle. So obviously you got a guy who can perform in the ring in yourself, and then you got somebody who's new to professional wrestling but not necessarily wrestling. So how was it working with Kurt Angle, especially a little bit early in his professional wrestling career? Yeah, you know, I think Kurt, awesome wrestler, no question about that. Um, just his his charisma's uh, top notch. His uh, his cardio is is top notch. Um, his wrestling ability at the time uh, was you know a work in progress, but it quickly got better and better and better. Um, to me, Kurt Angle is the epitome of pro wrestling. Uh, he was had the rock and mankind type of entertainment value. But he had the uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Eddie Guerrero and Crystal ability, uh, or he was developing that. And so to see, and, and he's a hard worker, man. That guy just works so hard. Um, and to see him really come into his own so fast what was uh, exhilarating. Uh, to get in the ring with him and work with him it was amazing. The one thing I would say with with Ben or with uh, with Kurt Angle was. Uh, I, and this is back in, in the in the WWE days. I haven't really watched too much of his time in TNA, so I don't know if it's improved or not. Uh, but it, the mind for the business is another important factor. I don't think Kurt Angle had the mind for the business at that point in time. Um, for example, uh, the one time Eddie Guerrero splashed him off the top rope with the flog splash, that's his finish. And Kurt Angle kicks out, and then literally within 20 seconds, catches him in an, in an ankle lock and makes him submit. You just got the frog splash from the top rope, and now 20 seconds later, you're literally nipping up to your feet like nothing's wrong with you. And so to me, psychology was lacking uh, in Kurt Angle's game. I think that was the only thing that was that, that was the only kink in his armor at the point in time. Um, I Like I said, I don't know if his psychology has improved at all. Uh, I'm assuming it has. It improves for everybody over time, or for most people anyway. Uh, and he's still on top of his game. So I'm, I'm just assuming that his psychology in pro wrestling has improved drastically. But back then, I think that was a huge chink in his armor. And, you know, you definitely hit on a great point there with psychology and selling and, and things of, like, of that nature, because that seems to be a big point of contention with a lot of the you know, the veterans or the old-timers that watch wrestling now, and they're saying that a lot of the psychology just isn't there anymore and that everyone kicks at everyone else's finisher, kind of like Angle, but obviously a very young Angle in the business did with Eddie and kind of just no-sold it. You feel like with current wrestling that it's just a huge, huge issue where they just, you know, forgot about psychology and just kind of push selling off to the side? Yes, absolutely. I think selling and psychology are two of the... Uh, you know, the, the two huge factors that are hurting wrestling today. Um, you know, for example, uh, I always in almost all of my matches uh, would have, uh, you know, the, the heel pick apart one body part. So if they were going to pick apart my knee, we were going to be stay focused on that knee. And after you've done the damage to my knee, you, you're not going to see me running around off the ropes like nothing's wrong with me. Um, you know, I think that type of thing is, is, I mean, how many times have we seen somebody get chop block in the back of the knee? Uh, you know, they heel will spend, you know, five, seven minutes just tearing that knee apart. And then all of a sudden we start to go home and the baby face is making a big comeback and he's running around like there's nothing wrong with his knee. 
I mean, we see that stuff all the time, and it, it takes away from, uh, I think it hurts the heels, it hurts the match, uh, the fans, uh, I think, don't get their money's worth, I think they start to feel gypped off, uh, I think that's a huge factor in pro, pro wrestling today, uh, psychology and selling are two things that are uh, desperate, desperately needed in the pro wrestling world. Where do you think he kind of went wrong and kind of went awry? where nobody really sells their finishers anymore. Everyone kicks out of everyone's finish. You know, what do you think everything kind of went wrong in in that aspect? I think it's the WWE office's fault. Um, You know, when when you start to allow certain guys to kick out of other people's finishers um, and just let it go unpunished, uh, I think you're doing a disservice for the fans. I think you're doing a disservice to the industry. And I think there were a lot of people in the office that thought it was great because it got huge pops from the fans. Well, there's a difference because, between getting the fans to stand up and cheer and clap for something that they didn't expect and actually injecting psychology and suspending the fans' sense of reality for a few hours. The second you kick out of someone's splash, the second you uh, don't tap out to an ankle lock, um, the second you, um, the second you kick out of someone's finish, no matter what it is, and you start to see that one time, two times, and three times, and there's no punishment, and the other talent backstage, I mean, they're looking for pops too, and they say, hey, these guys did this, and they got a huge pop, let's try this and this and this, and it's just, it, it just, it's like a cancer, it just starts to infiltrate the locker room, and, and becomes part of the matches, and so, and then all of a sudden, psychology and selling gets thrown out the window in exchange for just quick, meaningless pops. There's a huge difference between getting a pop and getting fans emotionally involved into what your match is really trying to say. You're definitely right. I mean, you hit the nail on the head for sure. And, you know, that investment equals money. And right now, you know, they might be making some money, but the ratings keep going down and down and down. And the ratings haven't been this low since 1997 when WCW was, you know, kind of kicking their butt a bit. And then obviously introduced the attitude error. Do you think that maybe getting away from the PG and going back to almost more of an adult attitude error would help at all? Or do you think that that's kind of a thing of the past? Uh, I don't really think, uh, you know, I think the attitude error, for me, I was a big fan of the attitude error. It was so much fun. Uh, I'm not a fan of the PG era. Um, and, it, you know, they got great talent there. But, you know, the talent to me is. Uh, is being gypped, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they're not being presented an opportunity to perform on a stage where they can just push the envelope and let it all hang out. Um, they're being restricted. They're being governed, uh, in a, in a, in a way to keep levels at PG or below. And so, you know, I think the fans are getting gypped and, and most importantly, uh, in my view, uh, the, uh, the talent's getting gypped from, you know, I mean, let's just face it. You only got so many so many years to perform in that ring, and the years that the current talents are being presented with in order to perform are heavily restricted. So once they're done and they retire, they're going to look back and they're going to be the, the the only thing they're going to be able to say is, "I could have done all of this, but I didn't do any of that because I wasn't allowed." And that's sad. 
that that's really sad to to see uh you know talent in that type of position where they want to perform on the biggest stage in the world but they they're heavily restricted in what they can and cannot do now we had WWE right before I left there we had WWE come to me and all the other talent that threw chops and said we couldn't chop anymore because Ric Flair was the one that chops I've thrown chops all my life. You're going to restrict me from throwing chops because everybody goes woo when they throw chops? That's insanity. That's just crazy. And so, you know, it, to me, it's, I don't know, it's its one of those things where uh, I'm not a fan of, of, of you know, office restrictions on, on what talent can do in the ring uh, when it pertains to um, actual wrestling. Definitely. And, you know, like, speaking of, being restricted and doing certain things. It was kind of funny back, you know, 15, 14 years ago, and they kind of did a play on restriction and kind of did, like, the anti-attitude or the anti-WWE, and they had you a part of it with right to censor, which is almost like them poking fun at the people, you know, trying to bring them down, but also poking fun at themselves a little bit. Did you think that was a fun little change for you to be playing you know, the exact opposite of Valdez and being a part of right to censor? You know, right to censor, it was more of a political agenda. We had the Parental Television Council, which is the PTC, that were lobbying um, our advertisers, including Coca-Cola, uh, to pull their advertising from our product. And we did. We lost Coca-Cola at the time. Uh, and so it was one of those things where Vince got pissed. Um, and so he decided, because they were basically trying to censor our our product, and so uh, we decided to basically poke fun at the PTC and create the RTC, the right to censor, and just make them the most annoying, uh, arrogant, and, uh, and righteous, self-righteous people in, in, you know, that WWE's ever seen. So they took some of the most uh, controversial figures, and Godfather and myself were two of the main ones, and, uh, and turned them into self-righteous uh, right to censor folks. And so I understood the politics behind it. I was all for it. Um, you know, to me it was, I, I'll take a shot of the PTC, no problem. Um, but did I have fun actually performing it with long pants on and a, and a shirt and tie on? Absolutely not. I hated it with a passion. <laughs> it, was, it was very strange, you know, like you said, with you and Godfather being heels at that point. It was just, it was weird, and you know, the music was annoying, and then Ivory was, uh, you know, in that, like, weird um, old woman kind of outfit. It was a very, you know, annoying gimmick. But, you know, I guess it, it did its trick, and it got over, and it's something that Vince, I think, loves to do, and that's poke fun at uh, some people that are trying to bring him down. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was, uh, I think, it, you know, it did its purpose, uh, because we didn't hear much from the PTC after we did that whole spiel with the RTC. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure it did its job that Vince expected it to do, and uh, and we moved on after that. And then, you know, going forward just a little bit, they end up doing a draft, and they split it up, split it up basically. You, know, you, got, you got your Raw, you got your SmackDown. They're kind of just making it two separate brands. And you become the big Valbolski, which was kind of your uh, gimmick nickname for a while. What was the thought process behind making you the big Valbolski instead of just calling you Val Venus? Uh, well, you know, at the time, I was calling myself the big Valbolski. You know, I'm a big fan of nicknames, and I was just calling myself that every chance I got, you know. 
every time I do my jokes, I go, you know something, the big Val Boski is a lot like, and so and I go on to do my joke. And to me, it was just, I didn't even realize it at first that the announcers started announcing me as a big Val Boski. Uh, until a few weeks after they actually started doing that, when uh, Jerry Lawler came up and he goes, we have to call you the Big Valbowski from now on. And I'm like, haven't you been calling me that the whole time anyways? He goes, well, no, we've been calling you Val Venus. And I'm like, that's news to me. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no grand plan behind it. It was just that now you're Big Valbowski. Yeah, it was just something that, you know, it's, to me it didn't really matter. The, they could call me both, Val Venus or the Big Valbowski. I mean, you know, to me, it didn't really matter. Um, I didn't even realize that the office made it a policy to call me the Big Valbowski. I just figured it was just something that people did. And it was kind of cool, you know, you got to see uh, in there with uh, Mr. Perfect, obviously a huge legend, Jericho. So, I mean, it was it was kind of just a, a good change-up, I guess, a little bit, because you got to work with some different but very talented wrestlers. Yeah, Mr. Perfect, man. I love getting the ring with that guy. He was one of those intercontinental guys uh, yeah. that, you know, that I always thought was absolutely amazing. His technical skills were awesome. Um, he, he was, uh, he had such a good mind for the business. Um, I was, uh, I was absolutely honored to get into the ring with, uh, with, uh, with Kurt for sure. Uh, he was one of the greats and you know, obviously another one of those awesome intercontinental champions. And then another uh, under-the-radar guy who was a great Intercontinental Champion would eventually, you know, going ahead a little bit, become your tag partner, and you guys win the tag titles. And that was a guy like Lance Storm, and you were playing Chief Morley, which is definitely a change-up from the Valpina character. Did you like teaming with Lance, and did you like for being the chief, if you will, the chief of staff, Chief Morley? You know, I absolutely loved getting in with Lance Storm. That's one of the uh, – to me, he was uh, – he was a guy whose technical ability I admired a lot, um, especially, don't ever tell him this, but I admired his drop kicks a lot as well. Um, it was some, drop kicks were something that, uh, you know, I threw them every once in a while, but no matter how much I practiced them, I just never had, uh, I never had vertical. I couldn't jump high, and I don't know why. Uh, it's just something I was just never able to do. Um, and to watch him get in the ring and throw drop kicks, I would never admit to him that, yeah, your drop kicks are phenomenal. But once he's not listening, I would say his drop kicks were some of the best in the business. Uh, but we'd get in the ring there, and, uh, you know, whoever we were with, you know, I'd tell Lance, I'd say, yeah, watch this drop kick. And I'd send my opponent off to the ropes, and I'd hit him with a drop kick. And I'd go over and tag Lance. Lance would pick him up and say, this is how you do it, kid. And he'd shoot him off and hit him with a super high drop kick. Well, then I'd get pissed, and I'd <laughs> tag him back or tag myself back in and go, that's it. And I'd shoot the guy. I mean, we'd, we'd drop kick the same guy five, six times before we, before we quit doing it. And it was one of those things where even when my drop kicks were nowhere near as high as his, I'd never say they were never high as his. I'd just turn around to him and say, that's how you do it. <laughs> and he'd just sit there and shake his head because I'd be hitting the guy in the kneecaps and he's tapping him in the forehead. <laughs> he definitely had one of the greatest drop kicks ever. And, you know, it's always, I always see him on Twitter. Somebody has a good drop kick and uh, somebody, you know, invariably says something to him and, you know, he says something back about the drop kick. So, it's definitely remembered by a lot of the fans for sure. And something that, you know, I remember 
specifically from your run, not only with Storm, but as Chief Morley, you had great chemistry, oddly enough, with Eric Bischoff. Was it a good relationship that you guys had, or was it just something like on-screen chemistry, and you, just, uh, you guys just kind of, you know, kicked it off like that? No, you know, I, you know, I like Bischoff, man. He's he's a good dude. He's a businessman. Um, you know, I, I always had a good time with him. Uh, and it was one of those things where I really enjoyed that point in time working with Bischoff. Uh, I think I was in the, I was never in that position before where there, where I was actually part of, um, I guess you could say the control, the governing body of, of raw at the time. Uh, so I was never, ever put in that position. And so for me, I think it was very short lived. I think I, you know, I was starting to develop that character. It was something new for me to do. Uh, it was a challenge. And just as I started to get my feet up and underneath me, uh, up and underneath me and really stand on a concrete base developing that character which to me was still in its infancy the rug got pulled out from under me um i don't know how i don't know why uh you know i know austin was coming back and he was going to do something with uh with bischoff uh, but that was kind of a disappointment for me i mean i i felt like there was so much more we could do with that character and it just kind of got shotgun and then the rug was pulled out austin came back and took over and so yeah it was it was a disappointing uh thing that you know i experienced in wwe but i mean there's all kinds of things that you know it, it, you can be disappointed with it's what you focus on that's really going to determine uh where you go in the future definitely i actually was going to bring up another point of kind of uh, a little bit of a disappointment you would think but I don't know. Tell me how you felt about it. It was Kane and RVD versus you and Lance at WrestleMania 19, but it wasn't really on the show. It was kind of like the pre-show. Did you feel like there, too, you kind of you should have been on the main card? Yeah, absolutely. That was another disappointment. Um, that was one of those things where they had the, if I remember correctly, it was the beer girls. The I can't remember which brand it was, but uh, the beer girls were being given a segment on WrestleMania. Our match was originally supposed to be on the WrestleMania pay-per-view. In the last minute, it was pulled in order to make room for the beer girls. And that was a huge disappointment. So we were on before WrestleMania started. And, you know, the Dudley boys came, I guess, basically stood up and said, hey, we should still get paid like we're on the pay-per-view for this match. And uh, so I don't know. I don't think we got paid like as if we were on the on the actual pay per view, but I do know that we did get a bigger check at the time. Uh, you know, whatever it was, three months after the fact. Uh, so I do credit the Dudley Boys for doing that. But money aside, that was a huge disappointment being booted off off the main stage of the year for Miller Light girls. Come on. I mean, yeah, that, that that really pissed me off. I think it pissed a lot of us off. Um, you know, yeah, we weren't too happy about it. I don't think anybody was there that was happy about it at all. And, you know, it's funny. It's kind of a generic question, but that's really that's a great answer to that part of it. But the WrestleMania moment, you know, being out there on the biggest show of the year, is it what everybody describes it as, as this, you know, like out-of-body experience? And as your time was nearing towards the end, they were getting – back to the big venues and the huge crowds, and they say that the sound rolls. You don't just hear the roar of the crowd. It rolls through the crowd. But what was it like competing at a WrestleMania, and if you could single out a WrestleMania moment for yourself, what would it be? 
You know, I think the WrestleMania moment for myself would have to be uh, probably when uh, Mike Tyson had punched Shawn Michaels. Uh, I, you know, besides, I mean, I, I compare that almost to the same feeling I got when I saw Hulk Hogan pick up Andre the Giant and slam him. Uh, it was almost, it almost elevated to that same level of, um, of intensity. Um, as far as where I stood in WrestleMania, I mean, I was in and out of them on several different occasions. To me, I like the smaller venues, uh, personally. The bigger venues are really, really cool to look at. But in those bigger venues, it seems like all the sound projects outwards and never comes back towards the ring. It actually sounds fairly quiet in the ring compared to when you're in an arena with instead of 40,000 people, you're in an arena with maybe 15,000 people. Uh, all that energy is being directed towards the ring, and you can feel the fans. You can feel the energy, and you just kind of tend to lose that when it comes to the big open-air stadiums. Cool to look at, but the energy for me in the ring as, a, as, a, as an athlete and a performer, it was missing in those big venues. Mm, yeah, that's pretty interesting because we've heard that from different guys, that those big venues – like you said, albeit a spectacle to look at, it's not necessarily the greatest from a performing uh, standpoint in that it's just kind of like, you know, that sound kind of just goes up. <laughs> and it keeps going up yeah. and keeps going up. But, uh, you know, you so you left the WWE, um, and we did see you resurface in TNA. And that was kind of a interesting time because, uh, crazy enough, that's, uh, you know, six years ago this past uh, week that you appeared in TNA, and uh, the big January 4th show, the Hulk Hogan debut, Eric Bischoff. Uh, just talk about briefly, if you can, the TNA run. Uh, kind of seemed like you, 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 know, you, you came in with a nice little push, and you know, it seemed like you were going places with them, but then he just kind of abruptly you know, came to an end. I know there was something about them kind of maybe hampering what you could do while with TNA. Yeah, you know, at the time, I don't think I, you know, I definitely wasn't ready to come back at that point in time. I know that for a fact. Um, you know, I, I was still uh, basically trying to get back into shape from my shoulder surgery when I was out for almost a year. Um, you know, so I still wasn't anywhere near where I wanted to be. Uh, and at the time, I was already, you know, basically getting ready to work CMLL again which I was really excited to do. I wanted to go back down to CMLL and tear it up and use that as a, as a platform to get back into, into decent shape. Um, but at, at the time, I was still really starting to um, push towards getting into the cannabis industry. That became more of my passion. Um, wrestling, to me, at that point, was just a paycheck. Uh, you know, it wasn't that I lost my passion for it. Uh, it was that I was disappointed in, 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 you know, with the wrestling business at that point in time. Um, you know, I, I had lost so many friends at that point in time. And, and the straw that broke the camel's back was when, uh, when Andrew t uh, Martin passed away. Uh, you know, he was one of my best friends. And that's really, I think that took a lot out of me. That took a lot of wind out of my sails. Um, it was almost to the point where, I felt like I needed to do something different and, and really start pushing the message that, hey, cannabis is a real medicine. And I started getting more focused on that. 
uh, I was still excited to go down to Mexico and wrestle and, and really perform at the highest level down there. But I also knew that I wasn't focused like I was before uh, I realized what cannabis could do for people. Um, before I realized what cannabis was or, or how it could uh, improve people's lives, the only thing I thought about was professional wrestling. I, you know, it was eat, sleep, drink, and breathe professional wrestling. Once I started losing friends in the industry because of big pharmaceutical pills, over time, my mind began, began to change, and I really started to focus on, hey, these doctors, they're, they're still prescribing us pain pills. They're still subscribing us uh, you know, muscle relaxers. All these things that have killed a whole bunch of my friends, this is something that I feel passionate about and really need to get the message out there that this isn't right. This isn't healthy. It's not safe. And so, uh, and I knew it was going to be, you know, like pulling teeth. I knew people, and we're so indoctrinated to believe that whatever the doctors prescribe you, uh, it's got to be good. And it's not. It's not good at all. And so I knew I was going to have a, you know, a war with a, with a lot of different people over this. Uh, but it was something I found myself thinking more and more about. Instead of, you know, spending three hours in the gym, uh, I was spending maybe half an hour in the gym and then reading books. Uh, the rest of the day. Um, you know, I, my focus in life really began to change. Uh, and, you know, it, it's one of those things where I still get the itch to wrestle every once in a while, but once I get in the ring and do a match, I think I'm good for another six months. <laughs> so, you know, it, I think after Test Died is really when my passion for wrestling kind of waned and my passion for cannabis increased uh, at the same rate that my passion for wrestling was waning. I could definitely, definitely see that. And as we hit the wind-down button here, one question that we love to ask, somebody especially like you, where you wrestled obviously in Puerto Rico, Japan, Mexico, Canada, all over the States, and you wrestled some great guys like CM Punk, Rick Flair, even in New Japan Pro Wrestling, you faced the ace, Hiroshi Tanahashi, you mentioned Steve Austin and Kurt Angle and Ben Juan Eddy, but do you have a favorite match or matches that you've had? Oh, man, there's so many of them. Uh, you know, the matches I had with Rikishi, uh, you know, I loved working with Rikishi, uh, Umaga. Um, oh, there's just so many matches that uh, even Crash Holly. I mean, Crash Holly and I, uh, we tore the roof off several nights in a row. Uh, you know, and there were matches that, you know, a lot of those were just house show matches. But, man, he was an easy guy to work with. He could do anything, and, you know, we had a lot of fun. Al Snow, every match I had with Al Snow, there was always something memorable in it. And uh, it had nothing to do with me. It was always Al Snow's mind coming up with stuff. Uh, Al Snow, I think, was one of the most creative guys uh, in, in the business. Um, he's got such a good mind for the business. And, uh, you know, Al Snow, I think, he's a guy that I learned a lot from. Uh, things that... Uh, uh, and I, personally, I think anybody can learn a lot from Al Snow. The, the guy's just, uh, he's just an incredible talent, um, and he loves helping new talent. And I had so much fun. I mean, we, I think Al Snow and I felt so comfortable inside the ring working each other that it was no problem to inject comedy into those, show, into those matches. And uh, I just follow Al Snow's lead. It was always like a night off for me. I didn't really have to think too much. I didn't really have to, uh, uh, you know, it seemed like, even though the fans would say, wow, these two guys are working really hard, when I worked Al Snow, 
it didn't feel like I was working hard. It it just it was just a yeah, well, one of my favorite guys to work. Between him, Dustin Rhodes, Rikishi, I mean, th- those guys are just phenomenal. Benoit was another one. Benoit, even though there was no comedy in his matches, um, Benoit, I loved getting in the ring there and just literally going eye-to-eye and toe-to-toe old-school style. Um, used to love working Benoit. Uh, Guerrero was another one. Uh, you know, he could go eye-to-eye and toe-to-toe as well. Um, there's just so many guys. I think once you get to that level, it's hard to say who's your favorite guy to work or what your favorite match is because you just always have good matches at that level. Absolutely. Or at least that was my personal experience anyway. Absolutely. I was going to say, and you definitely experienced that because you had a ton of good matches with all those guys. But it was almost something we kind of glanced over just a bit, which was the huge part of your career that was not in the WWF. I mean, obviously you spent 11 years or so in the WWF slash WWE. But you had such a great career, you know, in IWA in Puerto Rico, the WWC, uh, CMLL in Mexico, You, like we mentioned, New Japan and All Japan. But did you have a favorite place besides WWE that you wrestled? Oh, man, all the, you know, everywhere, every territory I went to, there was always something that I loved about it. Um, Puerto Rico to me was basically, I guess you could say, where I really started to come into my own. Um, and I love the island of Puerto Rico. It was fun to work there. Uh, back then, Puerto Rico was going hard. We were doing five nights a week, every single week, all year long, and we did that for years. And, uh, you know, I was with uh, Shane Sewell down there, who was my tag partner, and we were the Canadian Glamour Boys. And, I mean, with him and I down there, it was just – I think I had the most fun in Puerto Rico, but I still had an incredible amount of fun in, in Mexico, in Japan, in Europe – uh, you know, just everywhere I went, I always found something that I really, really loved uh, about working in that certain country or, or certain locations or certain venues. Definitely. Shane Sewell got a reference. And then uh, maybe an obscure guy, but even Rex King you got to work with, and who was kind of an underrated guy, kind of under the radar. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Rex, uh, you know, Rex is a good dude. He's a, he's a hard worker. Um he was a great wrestler. Um, it was one of those things where I think his attitude got the best of him, uh, and because you know he he did have a he did have a trigger switch when it came to getting angry. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but I mean, overall, I mean, Rex was a good dude. He just he had some issues that he was always seemed to be dealing with, and I think that hampered his career quite a bit. And one thing that was so intriguing to me because I didn't know it until I did some research on you. You know, I knew a lot of the other stuff, who you wrestled. Uh, obviously, I've seen a ton of your matches, but I didn't realize that the missing link played such a uh, major role in the early part of your career. What was it like with Dewey Robertson, who was a bit of a, a madman himself? Yeah, you know, Dewey, it was mainly his son, uh, Jason, and uh, and Dewey, but mainly his son that were, uh, I'd, I'd work out in the ring with. We were at Dewey's uh, house in his backyard training for quite a while. Uh, and then Jason got a building, so he would train there after you know after a certain period of time. It was about a year, year and a half that uh you know I was training at Dewey's facility, and uh, you know Dewey was uh, Dewey was a character. I think that's what really opened my eyes to what a character really is in professional wrestling. Jason, his son Jason, was the one that taught me the technical abilities, but it was Dewey that really showed me the the character and, and the entertainment factor of wrestling. 
And so, uh, you know, I really credit Dewey for kicking me off on the right foot when it came to uh, having some part of your uh, of your talent that would make an emotional connection with the fans. Anybody can throw on a singlet and boots and knee pads and go out there and wrestle, uh, you know. But no matter how good of a wrestler you are, you you cannot make an emotional connection with the fans unless you have a character that they buy into. And the only way they buy into that into that character is by developing the character to the point where it's believable. And so Dewey taught me a lot about that. And so I really credit Dewey for teaching me about uh, character development and being entertaining. And I fully credit uh Jason for his son Jason for you know teaching me the technical ins and outs of professional wrestling. Absolutely, and I can't forget another guy that you teamed with because I know I named a couple of them. You know, he just kind of popped in my head. But former tag champ, it's Steve Bradley, another guy gone too soon. Another guy gone too soon, and uh, he's you know I met him first in Puerto Rico. Uh, Steve Bradley was always a phenomenal wrestler. That guy had a mind for the business. He had a passion for the business. Big pharmaceutical got a hold of him. And mm. uh, now where is he? Six feet under. And that's just another one. It was a sad, sad day when he passed away. Um, you know, it's one of those guys where uh, you could see it happening. And it's the same trade. First of all, they get hurt. The doctor immediately prescribes anti-inflammatories and pain pills. And that's the beginning of the end at that point in time. Uh, you know, they just start taking more and more and more and as a year or two or three years goes by now they're taking handfuls of it they can't get off of it and uh all of a sudden you don't hear from them anymore and you hear little bits and pieces about what they may or may not be doing and the next thing you know they wind up in an obituary uh same path same path the big pharmaceutical drugs get a hold of these guys and uh it's really the 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 end of it all those pharmaceutical pills, I'm telling you, they're extremely dangerous. Without a doubt. And it's nice to hear again some some words about Steve Bradley because we've had a few guys talk about him. And I think the newer fan base should definitely go out and check some of the, uh, the Steve Bradley matches that are available because, you know, he had a, a very unique look to him and was definitely lost way too soon. But yeah, as we end it here, and this has been absolutely unbelievable, so informative on so many fronts, not just from the wrestling perspective, but all the stuff that you're doing now. But if we could just have this one last thing about wrestling, that is the Val Venus legacy, Sean Morley's legacy. When you close the book forever on professional wrestling, you look back, what would you say the stamp you have left on the business is? Well, I'm hoping my stamp on the business will be to uh, not convince anybody of anything, but to show them enough where they will convince themselves that big pharmaceutical medications should be a last resort and that cannabis should always be the very first resort. And uh, to me, changing the culture of uh, pain management in, in athletics, in, in all different aspects of sports, uh, is really what I want to see my stamp uh, look like. I want to see, uh, I would love a day to come by and say, uh, you know, Sean Morley um, showed athletes enough about cannabis and enough about pharmaceutical medications that they convince themselves that cannabis should always be the first line of, of 
uh, of medication uh, for injuries in terms of uh, pain medication, anti-inflammatory. I mean, cannabis is all that. It's a powerful anti-inflammatory. It's a powerful pain reliever. And it's also the safest medication in the world. And so I'm hoping that I can, uh, you know, really change the culture of professional sports and entertainment and, and you know, have people say, oh, hey, you twisted your ankle? Here, here's some RSO oil or, you know, here's some, uh, and it should completely normalize it. That's what I would like to see happen uh, in professional sports and professional wrestling. That's fantastic. It's so well said and uh, really the best of luck when it comes to everything that you're doing because it's uh, it's quite refreshing to see somebody be so into what they're doing post, you know, the, the quote, wrestling career. But please share with the listeners, the fans of the two-man power trip of wrestling, your fans as well. And I would say hello, ladies, but I don't know how many lady fans we do have out there. But tell them where they can find everything there is for Sean Morley and where they can learn more about everything it is that you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Val Venus E-N-T, which is, of course, short for entertainment. So it's at Valvenus ENT. Um, also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Captain Cannabis Show. And Captain is spelled with a K, and Cannabis is also spelled with a K. So it's uh, youtube.com slash Captain Cannabis Show. And then uh, also my Facebook page is facebook.com slash Captain Cannabis Show. Awesome. Very nice. And can we dispel the rumor that you want to be only referred to as Captain Cannabis? Because that has been widely reported. No, they can call me Val. They can call me Captain. They can call me Captain Cannabis. They can call me Sean. It's a free country. They can call me whatever they'd like. <laughs> well, I'm going to call you the man. And it's been awesome for you to spend so much time with us tonight and get it all out there. And uh, this is where I'll cut it. But thank you so much. It really, it was informative. It was fun. And it was a great trip down memory lane. Well, thanks for having me, guys.